the hell was banging on the desk right there? So that, I would say that was not me. That was Joel, and I just copied him so I didn't screw the thing up. Welcome to Freely Filtered, NefJC's twice-a-month podcast where we go over the most recent NefJC chat and really talk about the articles that are driving nephrology forward. My name is Joel Toff. I'm better known as Kidney Boy, and tonight I'm joined with Swapnil Hiramath. Swapnil? Hi, I'm Swapnil Hiramath. Uh, I go on Twitter by H. Swapnil. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. Matt? Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist and physician scientist at Duke University. Jenny? I'm Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist and nephrologist at Northwestern University. Excellent. Thank you. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the new IGA scoring system. And this is a this is a kind of a different type of study. This is a study, it reminds me of Levi Strauss, right? When I was in Sunday school, we were learning about Levi Strauss. He was a, a famous American a Jewish businessman. So that's why we learned about him in Sunday school. And he made his fortune not mining gold, but selling the blue jeans and the supplies to the people that came out to California to mine gold. He was a tool seller rather than a tool user. And tonight what we have is a study about a tool that will hopefully be used in the future. And these these tool studies, they come up frequently, and they're often some of the most referenced studies in all of nephrology. I think the number one most referenced study in nephrology is Andrew Levy's original study on the MDRD equation. And you know, for a study that is referenced in just about every publication that you read, uh, if you actually pull the article and read it, it's not a very exciting article to read because it just goes over hey, we created this formula. This is how we derived it. This is how we validated it. This is how accurate it is. And that's what we're going to run in today. Now, not all these tools are nearly as successful as MDRD. So a great example of that is going to be the the total kidney volume. This was a splashy article in the New England Journal of Medicine where some ADPKD experts came together and created a validated tool that looked at changes in total kidney volume measured by MRI over time predicted loss of GFR. And then this tool was used in the um, in the HALT PKD trial. This is a trial looking at uh, blood pressure targets in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. And it was positive by use of this tool, by it slowed a growth of kidney cyst size, but there was no improvement in doubling of serum creatinine or the progression of GFR. And when you talk to people today about HALT PKD, that's usually the primary limitation people have about that trial is that it didn't, yeah, it slowed cyst growth, but nobody bought into the fact that that really was a validated way to describe PKD, even though they had this previous study. And then in Tempo 3-4, this was the first trial of Tolvaptan, their primary outcome was change in cyst growth, and they were highly significant on that. Um, and luckily, they were also significant for drop in GFR, because when they went to the FDA, I think the FDA was not impressed with the change in uh, total volume of kidneys. So sometimes a validated tool doesn't catch fire and isn't accepted by the community. And I think the question is going to be whether this new tool for scoring IgA nephropathy is going to be more like MDRD or more like total kidney volume. I think we're going to start with a background. I think Matt's going to talk about background. 
So I'll talk about the background of this paper. This The paper that we're talking about is published in JAMA Internal Medicine, April 2019. It is from the International IgA Nephropathy Network, and the title is Evaluating a New International Risk Prediction Tool in IgA Nephropathy. A brief background, IgA nephropathy was initially described in 1968 in the French Journal of Urology and Nephrology. And interestingly enough, I tried to read the article and I could not find it. And apparently it's written in French and I, I can't find a translation into English. This is 1868? 1968. Wasn't it called Berger's disease? Right. It was published by two authors. One was John Berger and Hingles. And is it true that he invented the hamburger or is this a different guy? <laughs> I think this is a different guy. <laughs> Uh, it was titled Intracapillary Deposits of IgA-IgG. In the manuscript, they described the position of IgG antibodies in the glomeruli of patients with microscopic hematuria and proteinuria. So IgA nephropathy is common. And when I started doing research for the background, I noticed every single paper had the exact same starting sentence. I'm not sure if we can really classify it as plagiarism, but here's what it, here's how it went. IgA nephropathy is the most common form of primary glomerulonephritis in the world. And then the paper would start. Now, Matt, isn't your favorite quiz though, what's the most common glomerular disease in the world and it's not IgA? Am I right that this is your this is your go-to question? <laughs> that is correct. Am I right on that one? That is correct. And and what is the most common glomerular disease in the world if it's not IgA nephropathy? It is preeclampsia. And I take it you Ooh. write a letter to the editor every time you see these people. It's gonna be a lot of opening. Well now we just do it with a tweet. We don't have to worry about writing letters, <laughs> letters, letters to the editor. No one reads them anyway. Uh, the thing about IgA nephropathy, it is probably missed a lot because oftentimes it's asymptomatic and can have a very long course. And that's the biggest issue with IgA nephropathy is this variable presentation. It's also seen more common in Asian populations than in Caucasian populations, but there's debate on whether or not screening practices are more intense in Asia and whether or not we're missing some in Western countries like the United States. So the onset of- Wait, wait, wait let's, let's turn it around. What if you just measured it by the fraction of people that are on dialysis, right? Because that shouldn't be a affected by these screening issues, right? Well, then you have to see if these individuals are biopsied, which that's another issue. Is every single patient that has IgA nephropathy that ends up on dialysis biopsied? You could look and see that, but there's a wide variability in how often people are biopsying patients. But like, isn't it the percentage on dialysis in Western civilizations like one or 2%? Right. It's real small, right? It's small. It's less than 5% if it's, if it's sure. 30% of the biopsy results in Asia, it's got to be more than 1% or 2% of their dialysis population. Well, I'm just I saying mean, there's controversy. I'm not saying it's true or not, but definitely it's seen more in Asian populations for sure. Yeah, but there's a selection bias also there, right? So when people quote those numbers, you look at uh, Singapore, where I think when you enter the military, everyone gets a urine analysis. Yeah, exactly. Again, this may be an urban legend, but I've been, I've been told this is true. And if the urine analysis shows any abnormality, they get a kidney biopsy. You know, the, the number of IgA nephropathy would be high. Similarly, in Japan, uh, it seems school children get urine analysis as part of you know, being in school. So it's kind of a screening that's applied to everyone. So once we can't get our kids to get a measles vaccine and they got a UA on every single school child. <laughs> it's Japan. <laughs> so, so again, I don't know how much of this is, you know, just a selection bias from screening and doing more biopsies. But of course, one cannot rule out there may be some genetic factors. And there's the whole mucosal immune immunity stuff, right? Maybe there are some infections that trigger IgA production and cause IgA nephropathy. So there may be gene interactions uh, in, and environmental factors or just an artifact due to higher screening numbers. Just as a, a 
clinical anecdote in of one or two. I've seen a several instances where people have acute kidney injury and then you do a biopsy and it turns out they do have acute kidney injury, maybe ATN, but they also have IgA nephropathy. And I always wondered, this person likely had IgA nephropathy for a long time and no one knew about it until they had another insult and then they had a biopsy. And you ask that individual and they say, you know, I've never, haven't seen a physician in 10, 15 years. And turns out they had hematuria and that wasn't picked up on. So I think that oftentimes there likely is some sort of subclinical IgA nephropathy out there that we're just not seeing. And how bad were those biopsies? Like, did they have crescents and what percentage? No, it was more ATN than anything. Okay. And just, they happened to have IgA staining in the mesangial area. And it looked like the insult was not related to the IgA nephropathy. It maybe predisposed them to having ATN. And you're AT, and you biopsy the ATN because you see more blood than you expect to yeah, see. Yeah, that's exactly. You say, "Wow, yeah. it's like look at all the hematuria," and then you and look it's glomerular hematuria, and you're like, "I better, I better do a biopsy." And then you see them in clinic after the the AKI resolves, and their creatinine goes back down to like one, and but they still have hematuria, and you're sort of like, "What are you going to do now?" Yeah. So, uh, what you said regarding memory. Um, one way to find out the actual epidemiology is to look at autopsy studies of where uh, of people who died of non-kidney reasons, uh, so trauma victims, for example, and see how many of them had IgA, incidental IgA, right? Like the AKI you're talking about. So there's, it seems IgA was seen in 1.3% of autopsies of trauma victims in Finland compared with 15.6% of deceased donor candidates in Japan. Again, it, it's not trauma necessarily. They're deceased donor candidates, but there may be something. You know, it's not just the selection bias that I mentioned. Though there are, uh, there's documented cases of patients getting, having um, IgA mesangial deposits and no clinical symptoms whatsoever, which is one of the things that's kind of difficult about this disease is not everybody who has these mesangial deposits of IgA really have clinical IgA nephropathy. I don't know what you do with those people. Um, and I know it's true because I read about it in secrets. <laughs> So it's got to be true. One of the best textbooks ever written. What what do you mean one of the best? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, so that gets us to the next big issue is clinical trials. The clinical trials for IG nephropathy have not been uh, successful in identifying novel therapeutics, immunologic agents to treat IG nephropathy. The last two, which it's kind of nice in the last five years, we're starting to see a lot more papers being published looking at IgA nephropathy, including the one we're talking about today. But the STOP IgA trial and the testing trial were two fairly large trials in this area, which you don't see very often. And both of those left you with a dissatisfied result. So they looked at steroids versus no steroids um, on the background of RAS inhibition. And they had a lot of side effects from steroids. So we're really- Are you doing testing or STOP right now? I was talking about both together, really. I didn't, I mean... So, STOP IGA, we have discussed both STOP IGA nephropathy trial as well as the testing IGA nephropathy trials. STOP IGA nephropathy was done in Germany. And so it was mainly Caucasians, which is something that comes back and again and again, right? Like the discussion we just had about the variation. So this was uh, German uh, patients with IgA nephropathy. And they had patients who didn't have proteinuria and they gave them steroids. And the bottom line result was that there was no difference at all with steroids. So there was no benefit seen with addition of steroids in patients who they chose who had significant proteinuria and were at high risk of developing, you know, end-stage kidney disease and progression. On the other hand, testing IgA nephropathy was a global trial. It was 
from the George Institute, uh, the same people who uh, ran Credence. So the interesting part about testing is that it was stopped early for harm because they found the patients who got steroids had more adverse effects. But when you look at the efficacy, there was a benefit. So patients who got steroids did benefit in terms of lower progression rates, but that was overshadowed by the increase in infections. Two patients, in fact, had infections that resulted in death in the steroid arm. That's the reason why the uh, trial was stopped early. And the dose of steroids is suspected to be a big factor. So they got one milligram per kilogram per day of steroids in uh, testing IgA nephropathy. And the other thing that others have pointed out that they did not get any infection prophylaxis. So they did not get Septra or any other drug along with these steroids. Um, So what is happening now is there is a low dose testing trial or testing two, I think, which is going on in which they are using a lower dose of steroids and adding on an antibiotic prophylaxis. And another aspect of both of these trials is they're not taking the sickest patients. Everybody thinks that the sickest patients, the ones that have crescents or the ones that have rapidly loss of creatinine, everybody's treating those. Nobody's giving them placebo or just conservative care. And so it's a second tier of patients that are not as sick that you have a question like, should I treat these or should I not treat these? And then there's the lowest tier that I don't think anybody wants to treat, at least at this stage. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind is that there are patients that I, that I think everybody would treat. And I, and, you know, I have a few of them in my practice and they have all responded nicely. Well, yeah, pretty much all of them responded nicely to immunosuppression. Like it seems to be a pretty effective therapy for patients with crescents and pretty aggressive disease. Exactly. So crescentic um, IG nephropathy was an exclusion in stop IG nephropathy in testing. Crescentic IG nephropathy again was an exclusion. Proteinuria was uh, one gram in testing and 0.75 gram per day in stop. So otherwise they were quite similar. Matt, you're doing a great job on the background. You want to continue? <laughs> this is wonderful. I, I had a lot of history comments that I wanted to slam you on, but I held myself back. But if you want, I can. Oh, bring them. I can say something. Bring them. So you call it Burgess disease, but you know. I had it Berger, uh, but, 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 but Joel pronounced it Berger first. So I just went with it again. <laughs> I even murder. have it written on so, my form right. It's murder. <laughs> but but it's so that I would say that was not me. That was Joel. And I just <laughs> copied him. So I didn't screw the thing up. Uh, but there's, there's a woman involved. So Berger, Berger was a nef- nephrologist, but Nicole Hingless. Exactly. She was the pathologist. I so couldn't find people her first had described. name. Yeah, Nicole. So there you go. So she, because there's the immunofluorescence, which is a key part, right? People had looked for IgG, which was the commonest thing one would look for. And she was the one who said, hey, maybe it's IgA. And they found IgA. But that's... That's still 1967. Let's go back in 1805. Yeah, 1968. So they say, sorry, so they they presented it in 1967, but the paper was published in 1968. But the first description is by William Heberden in 1801. So one and a half centuries before what you said, Matt. So William Heberden, who's the guy who also described Heberden's notes, I think he described uh, a young boy with, you know, uh, bloody diarrhea and uh, purpura and blood in the urine. And a few years later, Johann Schonlin and Hanok, they report additional cases. So that's why, you know, you have the Hanok Schonlin purpura, which was in the 1830s and 1870s. Which is now IgA vasculitis. Exactly. Okay, so you can see where we're headed now. We need a better way to risk stratify patients with IgA nephropathy for a number of reasons. Treatment decisions, clinical trial enrollment to assist in biomarker validation. All these things are really needed. And uh, we've been sort of hammering at IgA nephropathy since, uh, what did you say, 1800 swap? (laughs) 
1801. 1801. <laughs> Berger, in his initial description, would have really needed to figure out more about the, the biomarkers. And, and are we going to talk about that, Jenny, at all? We're just going to skip biomarkers. In results? They don't use biomarkers. <laughs> so here, we're going to move on to the <laughs> Just like the authors, we're going to skip biomarkers. <laughs> Let's just go to the MESS score. So the MESS score is deeply involved in this paper. So I thought it'd take a little bit of time to go over that. And, and this is the Oxford Classification and MESS Scoring System for Kidney Biopsies. It's the hist- page 200 in Secrets. <laughs> nice. It's a histopathologic scoring of the kidney biopsy and used these four domains, MESS. M is mesangial hypercellularity, diffuse involving greater than 50% of glomeruli. E is for endocapillary hypercellularity. S is for segmental sclerosis. T is tubular atrophy with interstitial fibrosis. And then there is this added C, um, which we talked about earlier, and that's the presence or absence of crescents. And we'll talk more about that in the results section about how MEST and MEST-C was used for these risk prediction models. Swap, tell us about the the methods. So as we heard from Matt, one of the reasons testing may have shown the results it showed is that it was a heterogeneous group of patients. So there may be some patients who get a benefit, but perhaps we are over-treating some patients who get the adverse effects without getting the benefit. So would that be a better way of identifying patients who are at the highest risk and perhaps do a trial by giving immunosuppression only in those highest risk? That's sort of the premise of this study. Um, You're doing a you're trying to develop a risk score to identify patients who are at the highest risk. And so far, what did testing and stop IgA and the other trials do? They used commonly used clinical markers for prediction. So for example, the kidney function, the uh, blood pressure, and mostly the proteinuria. So those are the factors that we use to identify patients who are at higher risk. And those are the factors that are used in those clinical trials. Is there something we can do to better identify and stratify the patients who are at highest risk? That's the premise of this study. So let's talk a little bit at a very high level of what a prediction score does. Uh, it's basically a logistic regression. So there's nothing different than a regression analysis when you're developing a prediction score. So in this case, you are trying to identify the risk. You already have the outcome. So it's a cohort study. You have outcomes and and you put in a bunch of variables and see which ones are significant and which ones fall out. Uh, then you use those and using the beta coefficients from the regression, you add on a multiplier. For example, you know, the typical result you see is there's a hazard ratio is 2.4, say for proteinuria. But how do you use that, right? So there is a multiplier that you do some math and get hold of and say, hey, multiply proteinuria by 2.5, multiply the GFR by 3.6, and, and so on and so forth. And, and with that, you get a certain number, which is the risk of uh, developing kidney failure. So it's just a transformation of the logistic score in, in a very crude terms. But the problem with that using just that is that you can be overfitting is that you will overestimate your risk score. You will get, a, you know, you will think that you've got a perfect risk score because you already got the outcomes. Uh, so what you should do is you have a derivation cohort and you use a separate group of patients and use that to validate your score. So you develop the risk score, then you apply the same risk score in a different set of patients and see how good is your risk score. Does it actually do well in a different set of patients? So that's what they've done here. They had a derivation cohort and they had a validation cohort. And actually the two cohorts are comprised of seven different cohorts. So they had the Oxford 
Old Cohort, the Valiga Cohort, a, a couple of uh, Chinese and a Japanese cohort that were included. So uh, you can see that it was international and global, but it was China, Japan, Europe and North America. So other parts of the world were not included. And there is plenty of IGA seen in the rest of Asia and, and uh, possibly to a certain extent in Africa as well. So Sub-Saharan Africa is supposed to have the lowest rate of IGA of any place on the planet, but I don't know about the rest of Africa. Exactly. It may be a competing risk, right? Maybe other diseases are more common and IGA hence falls down in the proportion uh, or who knows exactly. And again, you had the criteria for the cohort is that they needed to have outcome. They needed to have the biopsies. So that I guess restricted the cohorts that they could use. So it, but it is still a lot of work, right? So they got seven cohorts together. They used four of them for the derivation and three of them for the validation, trying to make sure there is there were Chinese and Japanese patients as well as Caucasian patients in both the derivation as well as the validation cohort. And just, can, just help me out. Did they randomize individuals from these individual cohorts into validation and derivation? Or did they just take all of one cohort and say your validation and all of another cohort, your derivation? So they did not randomize. So the derivation cohorts comprise the Valiga, the Nanjing and the Tokyo cohorts entirely. And the uh, validation cohort comprised the Beijing, Fukuoka and uh, the two Oxford cohorts completely. So it wasn't randomized. It was two, you know, three discrete separate cohorts. So the, for the clinical model, they said, hey, let's use things that people use. So they used EGFR, they used mean arterial pressure, and they used proteinuria uh, at the time of the biopsy for developing a clinical model for prediction. That's what we use. That's what's been used in trials. So if you want to prove that your risk score is better, let's compare against that reference standard. So that was then. And then for the limited model, they included the biopsy, meaning the MEST score that uh, Matt just spoke about. Then in addition to that, in the full model, the full model included everything. So that included the clinical model. There's the GFR, the MAP, and the proteinuria, and the MES score, as well as age, gender, sex, uh, race, and ethnicity, which was self-reported. The presence of crescents, because the MEST score that I mentioned earlier was the original MEST score. Uh, there is a MEST C score, uh, which uh, adds on to the MEST. So the crescents were added on in the full model. Uh, the body mass index. Uh, use of RAS inhibitors, use of immunosuppression at the time of the biopsy and interaction terms in addition to that. And then they said, hey, let's remove the race and ethnicity and see how much of a difference that makes, uh, which was the full model minus the race and ethnicity. The rest of the stats is more about how do you determine that one model is better than the other. Uh, so for that, there are many stats that are thrown about. Uh, one of them is the C statistic that is the most commonly used and the important one. So with the C statistic, if you have something that's significant, uh, that shows that your model is good at identifying patients who were at risk of the outcomes and uh, it's better at not misidentifying patients who were not at risk of having the outcomes. That's uh, one. There's the uh, NRI, which I thought was important, but in the tweet chat, it turns out people were saying, no, no, the NRI is not important. Something called the IDI, which is important. And rather than try to explain uh, that in the podcast in the show notes we'll add a few papers for those who are so inclined who can read up and try to understand these uh, factors. I want to know about more. the R2-D2 statistic <laughs> that one is the one that's really interesting to me does it come with a there's little there's robot? no D2 <laughs> It's called RTD, right? R2D, right? That's definitely a droid. Don't tell me that it's not a droid, okay? There's the R2D and there's the Akaike information criterion, the AIC. I think the Akaike is even more important. Can I wake up now? <laughs> 
But going back to this uh, model generation, though, swap, one thing that I'm not clear on, and it's not really transparent in the text, maybe it's just something that's very apparent to people who are doing this type of work. But uh, I know that some of the data don't have a normal distribution. So they're going to be transformed in different ways. But you know, is there a rationale for why they would log transform the proteinuria, but then square root transform the EGFR? And what is that process? And is it are you basically just throwing random functions until something spits out that's reasonable? And there's no a priori criteria? Absolutely. So for proteinuria, it's not uncommon to do some log transformation, because you often see that the data is very skewed. So you will have a lot of patients who have, you know, three or four grams of proteinuria, and at the other end, you will have a bunch of patients who have a few milligrams of proteinuria and it becomes very skewed and your models may not like it. So it's very hard to do uh, analysis and many of the assumptions that are used in the model fitting would fall apart. So you want to have a normal distribution of the variables and one way to do that is to use log transformation. The same thing applies to, you may often see, uh, I think for the pentoxifiline studies that were discussed a few years ago, they did a geometric mean of the proteinuria. So proteinuria is a tricky one because it's skewed. So you do have to transform it. Another thing I did forgot to mention is that for the logistic regression, it's again, it's the Cox proportional hazards method that was used. Uh, and the outcome is 50% fall in GFR or end-stage kidney disease. They call it renal disease, but you know, it, it is end-stage kidney Thank disease. Thank you, Swap. You're waking up. I'm trying to yeah, keep I you feel awake. Like, I'm feeling it now. Thank you. And the end-stage kidney disease was uh, either a GFR of less than 15 or dialysis or transplantation. And the last I just wanted to mention is that for the scoring of the biopsy, what you really want to do is to have one person look at all the biopsies, like a central pathology lab where all the biopsies would be seen and where all the scoring would be done, right? However, you say there is a little bit of subjectivity to scoring. Unfortunately, I guess, you know, they didn't have resources available to do that. So the scoring of the biopsies was done at each center based on their local pathologist. And, and in this case, the study investigators took the scoring that was done in the original cohort as the scoring that should be accepted. Okay, so moving on to results. Uh, what I found was the main takeaway was the following. The authors developed and validated two risk prediction models for the development of end-stage kidney disease or a 50% decline in EGFR among patients with biopsy-proven IgA nephropathy. And the actual clinical utility of these models, I think, will be hashed out in a few minutes when we actually get to the discussion section. So figure one shows that the studies included 2,781 patients in the derivation cohort and 1,146 patients in the validation cohort. The five-year risk of the primary outcome was around 15% for both. A figure 1B shows that when you plot the incidence of the primary outcome against time, the derivation and validation cohorts actually have similar slopes. So this means the two co cohorts had similar proportions of cases that reached the primary outcome. Now, Table 1 breaks down the characteristics of the study participants in each cohort. The two were similar in median age, median mean arterial blood pressure, median proteinuria at the time of biopsy, and the use of RAS blockade. I just want to pause for sure. a moment here. Do we think that it would be better that the validation derivation cohorts were more similar, or do we want them to be less similar to show more general generalizability? I can't even say the word, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Generalizability. I say, I, what, how, someone else say so I can imitate them. Generalizability. Generalizability. Okay. Generalizability. Generalizability. That's a hard one. Generalizability. <laughs> Swap, no, one more time. In the generalizability. Yeah, generalizability. He, <laughs> he did win. Well, I think, I mean, I do think that's a valid point, though, um, in terms of 
you know, diversity of validation cohorts. And it, intellectually, it makes sense. I just don't know in terms of there's probably a lot of variability within each cohort, and there's not enough, and there's not a high enough end necessarily for one to be skewed a particular direction. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Swap? There was something that was running in my mind at the same time is maybe having slightly different cohorts would be useful. But I think these cohorts are somewhat similar, you know, so it's unlikely that you would find a a dramatic difference. Uh, You know, patients who are at really low risk are not included because we think they are low risk and patients who are really high risk are not included because, you know, we know what to do in those patients. So I'm not surprised that they look similar. Yeah. And we'll come back to race later, but certainly in genetics, uh, large scale genetic studies, they do the validations in different ethnic cohorts. So, I mean, that tracks with your logic. I'm looking at the the MEST scores, and there's wild differences in the endocapillary proliferation with an E1 score. Yes. Which means, what is the E1 is like at least one uh, endocapillary- Presence. Just presence. Presence of it's just endocapillary proliferation in at one place anywhere in the biopsy was 40% in the validation cohort and only 17% in the derivation cohort. Yeah. And so what's interesting was they say in the methods that they did the Kruskal-Wallis test for continuous variables and the Fisher's exact test to see if there were statistically significant differences. And I don't see any asterisk. Asterixes. I don't know why we're having problems pronouncing common words. Professional podcasters, guys. <laughs> Very professional. Yes. Um, you know, I'm not seeing statistically significant differences in table one, but you know, if you eyeball the median numbers, the derivation cohort had a 10% higher proportion of male patients. You know, certainly a male gender has been associated with a worse disease, uh, 27% higher proportion of Caucasian patients, 10% higher use of immunosuppression after biopsy. Right. And you know, th- those, those are related, right? Because Caucasians, IgA is predominantly a male disease, like two to one. And in Asians, it's a one-to-one ratio, male-female. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they had more men is also related to the fact that they had more Caucasians. Mm-hmm. Yep. See... Uh, yep, and you pick up on the differences in the MESS scores. And then there was also a higher proportion of patients with crescents, I believe, in the validation cohort. So in E-Table 2, in the supplement, the authors present the results from their Cox proportional hazards modeling. And uh, for the clinical model, so this is without the use of biopsy, the strongest risk factors were EGFR, blood pressure, and proteinuria. And there was a strong association between each of these factors and the development of the primary outcome. Now in the full model, models, uh, which do incorporate uh, the biopsy results and other covariates, the risk factors that remain most significant were EGFR, tubular atrophy on biopsy, and age. And you'll notice that the presence of crescents did not make it into the models. Um, E-table 5 in the supplement shows that the hazard ratios for the two full models with the crescents with and without immunosuppression, um, and this did not test to be statistically significant. So from a pathophysiology standpoint, the presence of crescents seems like it should affect the progression to the primary outcome, uh, logically speaking. Um, so what does it mean that it wasn't significant enough to incorporate into the model? And you'll see in E-Table 3, in terms of the equations, you don't see um, you know, the crescents actually factored into the equations. Uh, the performance of these models was reported in Table 2 of the main text, There was a small but statistically significant increase in the C statistic on the order of 0.03 to 0.04 difference improvement in the full models. Now, to put this into context, the C 
statistic usually is a model would be considered having a great C statistic if it has a value of over 0.8, which indicates that the model is strong. Uh, values over 0.7 indicate a good model. So the clinical model was in the high 0.7s. And then it went to 0 0.82 uh, with one of the full models. So it's a, it's a small difference, but we can't overinterpret the C statistic because small changes in it may falsely lead us to believe that a variable or a risk factor is not biologically significant or relevant. And Nancy Cook wrote a very informative analysis of this phenomenon in the journal Circulation in 2007, which we will link in the show notes as well. Can you expand on that a little bit more? I'm not sure I followed. What was her point in this circulation article? You know, so for example, um, A. Age itself, in terms of being a risk factor for coronary artery disease, may bring a C statistic up to you know greater than 0.7. But then when you add um, LDL cholesterol, it only raises it up to like 0.74. So it would make you think that age was more important than LDL, and that's not the lesson that you should be taking. Right. There. Is that the point? Right. So if you're over-interpreting the C statistic, you may be drawing some conclusions that are not biologically relevant. And here we have adding an, a biopsy, right? an invasive test takes you from 0 0.7 to 0 0.8 and change. Yeah, 0 0.78 to 0 0.82. Oh my God, that sounds like nothing. Right. So we can't overinterpret the C statistic, I think, as a takeaway from that. Now, table two also reports a positive net reclassification index and a positive integrated discrimination improvement. And at the end of the day, I want to know if patients who are misclassified in terms of risk end up getting reclassified. So in my mind, these would be more informative numbers. Uh, both the net reclassification index. Can you just, uh, I don't understand, what, what, is that, what does classification mean? What are you talking about? So classifying whether they have disease and reclassifying them. So say if someone was classified as not having a disease and with these models would be uh, reclassified, you know, according to risk. Right. But everybody, we know that's not what's happening here, right? Is it because everybody's got the disease? Right. They have the disease. But in terms of meeting the primary outcome, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And this is in comparison, right? So in the, in the clinical model, for example, let's say a patient has been classified as having a risk of having an outcome and the full model correctly says that, no, 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 they did not have an outcome and the full model is correct in showing that they did not have an outcome then that's the improvement that you see okay with the full model okay and so it's, it's not the model by itself nri has to have a, it's a comparison between two models how is the new model better mm. than the previous model Okay, so how, so how how does how does the full model compare to the clinical model yeah, in terms yeah, of reclassification? Exactly, exactly. So what's the result there? Yeah, so there was an improvement um, in the full model compared to the clinical model, as well as c compared to the limited model, which incorporated only elements of the biopsy without other uh, covariates involved. Can we quantify how much this happened in a way that I can understand, or in not in a way we can understand? Yeah, I mean, to me, like these are still also like really teeny tiny numbers, and so when I was looking. Looking at this, I wasn't exactly sure what to make of it either, <laughs> to be completely honest. What is a change of, you know, NRI of 0.11? What does that mean? And I'm not exactly sure. But in terms of the directionality, I think that's important that there was direction towards the positive. But the biggest differences are between the full model and the clinical model that lack the biopsy data. If you do put in the biopsy, there is a difference for some of these. Like, so for example, without race and ethnicity, there is a positive NRI, but that's a little bit more limited. And then between the two full models, one with race and one without race, there didn't seem to be, um, these differences were not that great. I mean, but the whole the whole race ethnicity stuff is so interesting, right? You talked about the E table three and the E table five, uh, which is you know I, I'm so happy we, we are talking about all the E tables today. 
<laughs> I know. Hey, guys, make sure you find a woman who looks at you the way Swapna looks at an e-table. <laughs> uh, so let's look at the e-table 4, though. You know, so the e-table 4 tells you the pathology based on ethnicity. Uh, so here you see a dramatic difference. So in Caucasian, the only 16.3% had crescents. In Chinese, 48.3% had crescents. And in Japanese, 61% of the biopsies had crescents, which is like, I find that, right, I, I was, I was like, I can understand that. That is that. some data that I can understand. Thank you. <laughs> Don't even need a p-value. But, but that goes against, p-value. exactly. Right. So, so that goes against the, you know, I was talking about a selection bias that in Japan, they biopsy all these school children with microscopic hematuria, which are at low risk. That doesn't seem to make sense here. 61% well, except of for, Japanese except for have crescents. No children were included in the study. So all Correct. the people that are in the study, they got biopsied when they were five years old, and then they get biopsied again when they're 35 and they're, they got crescentic GN. You know, what does it exactly. take what does it take to rebiopsy somebody with a known diagnosis of IGA? Maybe it's rapidly progressive GN. Exactly. So so it may be maybe in fact a worse kind of selection bias in that respect. Because they already had had a biopsy. So you're only going to rebiopsy them if they're really you're worried about what's going on. Um the other thing is could that also be, you know, I was talking about the local pathology because all the differences are significant. You know, even the tubular uh, changes, the atrophy or interstitial fibrosis, it's just puzzling to me why there should be so much difference. Um, and, I, and I wonder if some of it is because, you know, different pathologists have different ways of scoring. Should we go over E-table 5 swap? <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. No, no, Jen, Jenny covered E-table okay. 5. Oh, That's true. Did I did. We? I did touch on that. Um, we did not go over E table six, though. But <laughs> I am not going to do that. When, when are we getting to figure two? Figure two is super cool. Okay. So as we were pointing out, race, at least in the statistical modeling, did not seem to contribute to much of a difference in terms of improvement of performance of the models, regardless of what uh, we were seeing in terms of the E-tables and the differences in biopsies there. This lack of difference was demonstrated visually in figure two, which plots deciles of observed versus predicted five-year risk of achieving the primary kidney function outcome. And in these graphs, we see a strong concordance between the predicted and observed risk both with and without race in the model. So the data points are basically falling along a slope of one. They didn't have the courage to show the slope for just the clinical model, model though. Right. <laughs> right, which may have looked very similar to this. Hmm, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's entirely that's possible. That's a good point. That's an excellent point. Yeah. And so that's probably something that could have been nice to have included in the supplement as e-figure one, right? <laughs> So taking this to clinic, we see from the data presented in Table 3 that increased predicted risk of the primary outcome associated with a steeper decline in EGFR, and the p-values for all of these points were less than 0.001. And also in the results section, they provided a link to a website where you can use the predictive models to calculate risk based on your patient's clinical parameters. Yeah, and this is, and this is the information that I think people want it. They want to know, right? So with the full model, if the patient was low risk, that meant they only had a five-year risk of 50% drop in GFR or ESKD of 1.5% versus the people in the highest risk where it was 46.5%, right? That's meaningful information that's going to change what you do. Should it really change what you should do? It should. Maybe not. It, well, it's, uh, let's put it this way. It's the people you want to enroll in the trial. So, right. If they have a forty-six percent chance of having an outcome in the next five years, we're going to be able to we're going to be able to figure out if steroids work or if you know whatever you're going to throw at these patients. It's got to be rituximab. We're always using rituximab. Steroids don't work. How is rituximab going to work? 
It's an antibody-mediated disease. Shut down the B cells and you're going to stop the disease. Come on. <laughs> it's so simple. Maybe you need a refresher course. Hey, it's all ball bearings nowadays. Do you know how much um, IgA the human body produces in a day, Joel? <laughs> Is it in secrets? It's not. I will include it <laughs> then, next. Then I don't. <laughs> next, next, the next edition will include this little nugget of information. For a 70 kilogram adult, five grams Ooh, per day. Wow. That's right. I'll go back to my hole. <laughs> you guys continue. <laughs> my job is done here now. <laughs> so so what, what happens to this five grams? Is it in the uh, mucosa? Most of it is not it actually retained in the circulation. Most of it is secreted. Mucosa and different... Um, tissues and like the tonsils or other areas we can go into more detail if you'd like yeah, that might be that, a separate that's the podcast whole fascinating stuff right <laughs> like the, the the whole infection related iga exacerbation yeah. and stuff it's, it's and another thing that's interesting about iga is it's hard to get a mouse model because mice do not have iga subclass one which is the pathogenic huh. iga that you're directing antibodies to not the pathogenic, but that's where, and then the big immune complexes are, are made and sort of goes into the mesangium and causes the disease. Has anyone expressed it transgenically? There have been attempts to express it transgenically, and um, I'll put in the show notes a table that includes at least 15 different mouse models. All right. I look forward to the <laughs> Thank you. It's Ladies a supplement to this a, podcast. Look for a husband that looks at mouse models the way Matt does. <laughs> So, Jenny, what do you make of the fact that uh, crescents were not found to be important in this these risk scores? Like, we know crescents matter. Right. How come they did not matter? Well, what I happened mean, there? I mean, there is a possibility. I think um, Sean Barber had mentioned this in, uh, when he joined the NEFJC discussion. Um, obviously, you would you know treat them differently if they had crescents. You would put whether or not that you know affected outcome in terms of did that delay the the progression of the decline of EGFR in some way? Um, did it somehow slow uh, progression to ESKD? I don't know there's may potentially an element of confounding there. So I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but that seemed a little bit odd to me and perhaps a potential weakness of this model. And I want to point out again about the crescents and and it could be as as Swap pointed out that maybe they're a little bit loose in their definition of crescent because we don't know for sure. And you know when you see IGA and and biopsy conference everyone and and you see a bunch of crescents, everyone just kind of peeks up and goes, "All right, that's a, that's a serious thing. We got to treat that. And, you know, maybe you need to grade the crescents more or have a better look at those. So I, I can't believe that they wouldn't be predict. How did the, the, they deal with deaths? If the patient died before five years, but didn't reach dialysis, were they included as a uh, success? I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't think there were any deaths in the validation cohort. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you can sometimes deal with that with competing risk models, which apply especially when uh, you're talking about dialysis and death, right? So if people, if something causes more deaths, then people may not remain alive to go on to dialysis and it may show the intervention as being of benefit because few people reach dialysis, but actually that's because the drug or the intervention is killing them. So in that sort of a situation, you're supposed to use a competing risk. But I think Jenny is right that these are, you know, IgA nephropathy patients are younger. They are, you know, they are not like diabetic nephropathy or something. So it's likely that... Yeah, but if they have crescents and we're throwing high-dose steroids at them, we're going to kill a few of them, right? We saw that in the, um, was that the testing trial? Yes, exactly, in the testing trial. That's a good question. And I don't see anything mm -hmm. mentioned about... Yeah, I didn't see anything in the flow chart either in terms of, you know, dropout due to mortality. 
at least in the derivation cohort. Okay. And that may be actually a selection bias issue because they may not have included people who died in the cohort. That's a weakness, actually, if true that people who died were not included. Uh, but going back to the point of treatment, so in this study, at uh, at that point of biopsy, about 7 to 9% of patients were already on immunosuppression. And after the biopsy was done, about 30 to 40% of them got immunosuppression. So obviously, they did include the whether the patients got immunosuppression even before the biopsy was done um, or at the time of the biopsy in the risk score. But if patients got immunosuppression afterwards, that was not included in the risk score, which, you sh- which yes, you should not because it happened after the biopsy was done. You want to know the risk at the time of the biopsy. But the immunosuppression does affect the outcomes. Exactly. So if someone had crescents and they got uh, cyclophosphamide and they had better outcomes, this risk score will tell us that, hey, having crescents doesn't matter, but it does matter. It does mean that these guys should have uh, more immunosuppression, but your risk score will not show you that. So even to include this risk score in a trial makes me a little bit nervous, to be honest. So it circled back to the beginning. So we had a couple of commentaries, right? So Professor Fihali from Leicester, who uh, wrote a commentary for us, who was one of the co-authors, he was very categorical in saying, do not use this risk score to decide whom to treat. And Professor Glassack on Twitter pointed out the same thing, saying, hey, it's nice, this risk score is nice, but don't use it to decide whom to treat. And it'll be hard, right? You, you have an app. Why do you create an app if you don't want clinicians to use it? If you just want the trialist to use it, maybe the app should not be available for you and me. Yeah, and there were some comments on the NEFJC chats about would you plug this in and would you tell your patient, hey, you know, you have a 12.8% risk of developing ESKD or having a 50% decline in your EGFR. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. You know, as a physician, you know, if you give numbers, which we don't actually know, you know how accurate they would be in real life, not just, you know, in a study and uh, with statistical testing, sometimes I feel like people can get fixated on that versus maybe the bigger picture. And, you know, I'm not really sure in terms of clinic how helpful that would be if it doesn't even inform our treatment choices. But it's also a a one snapshot in time and looking in the future. So obviously, we see patients every so often, we get the same clinical parameters. And this doesn't build into that, you know, how are these parameters changing? And yeah, I think I agree. Like if you have an app, you're going to use it and then it's likely going to change people's perception of what to do. And that's a pretty scary thing. Right. And patients can actually access this app themselves. And they might not be able to get their MEST score though. I guess they might be able to. Well, yeah, maybe. In my experience, patients like when you give them hard data rather than telling them, oh, you're at high risk. Their perception of high risk and my perceptions of high risk can vary. But when you say, hey, you've got a 18% chance of being on dialysis in two years and a 26% chance of being on dialysis in five years, then we're on the same page. I get that. I get that. But then you have to give them the asterisks and say, but this is in a cohort of patients that were all treated and it's hard to know exactly how that result will Im- impacts you. Yeah, I think you just say, you know, and individuals vary and this is the best that this is the best tool that we have today and let's make a treatment plan based on these percentages. And I you know, I guess I'm going I, I can't believe I said that cuz Glassic told me that I'm wrong <laughs> and I want to be on the don't want to be on the other end of that debate. I think that's where uh, the problem lies is when you sit there and say that you're going to make a treatment decision based on something you just said, a percent 
can't decline an EGFR or whatever it may be. I think that's where we're still struggling. We don't have that information yet, even yeah, with this. Yeah, but the reality is we were making decisions based on their clinical presentation before this article came out. And this score is a little bit better than your clinical assessment, but it's not a lot better, right? It's a little bit better. And, you know, people were making decisions based on, you know, proteinuria and GFR and male gender and blood pressure. Ace inhibitors. Exactly. So I, I played around with the app a few times to see, you know, how the numbers right. change. Uh, so so I put in patients that I thought that I would think are at high risk, right? A lot of proteinuria, high blood pressure, uh, young people. And, you know, I tried to put different flavors of the biopsy. And, you know, yeah, it changed a little bit, like 15 to 16 to 17 person. So the number is higher and lower. But I don't think my decision to treat would change whether it's 15 person or 17 person. No, uh, that's right. That's right. The things that's going to make your difference is if it's 15% or 40%. And then what are you going to do? Wait for the testing to dry. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and so what's the future, Jenny? What else can we do to help predict things better? Science. <laughs> that's always going to be my answer, right? So, so a couple of things that bother me about this model is you know, IgA is a, I mean, it's a, it's a heterogeneous disease. It's a complex subset of a complex disease. So kidney disease itself is heterogeneous and complex. And then we have a subset, a type of disease that is itself complex and heterogeneous. And so, you know, how can you risk stratify people in a more precise way? If you look at the covariates in this model, it's a blunt tool, right? We're talking about blood pressure, proteinuria, age. These are all things... You know, I know that the MESS score is going to be more specific to IgA, but say if you had a similar score for diabetic nephropathy, right? Like a lot of these parameters are not necessarily specific to IgA. We're not measuring causal biomarkers, for example. We're not measuring or we're not identifying DNA variants in the IgA gene or in immune uh, genes. Uh, so Ali Garavi and Christoph Kiriluk had published in Nature Genetics in 2014 that they had identified some loci involved in autoimmunity that might be causal in IgA nephropathy pathophysiology. And uh, they were also developing a polygenic risk score that would be potentially useful in the future um, if there were more patients that had their genetic profiles identified and their variants cataloged um, to try to see you know, whether or not that would actually provide a little bit more of a precise snapshot into their clinical picture and potential uh, predicted outcomes. There is uh, some concern about using polygenic risk scores in CKD because it is so complex, but since we have a heterogeneous disease, we probably need other uh, markers that we measure that can capture that heterogeneity. I'm not sure if these covariates in this model are going to be sufficient for that. I don't know what are your thoughts. These polygenic risk scores are pretty exciting, right? You have seen, especially in coronary artery disease, there are a bunch of them that have come up. Yeah, yeah. Like um, said, Katharisen is the biggest proponent of it. And Christoph Kirluk had written a nice review in Nature R Reviews for Nephrology, which we can also link about some of the challenges we have to overcome to apply this to kidney disease is actually a very thoughtful review. And I think the bottom line is we actually need to genotype more patients. There's also the possibility of uh, using measurements of IgA and IgG that are specific for the galactose deficient IgA. There was a a GWAS hit for BCL2, which is very interesting. Uh, if you overexpress BCL2 in B cells, you can provoke mice to have a uh, phenotype that seems to be similar to IgA nephropathy. 
And then there's a few other uh, papers that I sort of came across, but I'm not sure where we are with this, but it seems when you look at what the model that they came up with, clinical parameters, biopsy findings, hopefully in the future, we can even get better and have different biomarkers that we could measure. Yeah, because I think, yeah, people have been publishing on uh, galactose deficient IgA in the urine. Seems like some of those studies are still ongoing. Okay, we've been going a long time. Are we wrapping this up on on IGA nephropathy? Does anybody have any large points that they want to still make? Anybody have that's the six pages of notes that they're like, Joel, I really need to go over <laughs> this mouse model. I did have six pages, but I'll put those in the show notes. <laughs> it's very interesting stuff. But I, and I think in the end, my uh, take home message from this is it's uh, probably, uh, it's good to have this and it's a, a step forward, but clinically speaking, I don't think that I would use this in my practice, but I'll probably look at, I might take a look when I do the next biopsy that shows IgA and just going to see what it shows. But I don't know if I would, I definitely know I wouldn't change my treatment plan based on just that data. Okay, excellent. So we are done with the glomerular filtration. It is on to the tubular secretion. (laughs) I know that Matt has some really interesting uh, moments of tubular secretion for us. What do you got, Matt? Yes. So I actually unplugged for about six days at Hilton Head. No tweeting was was done just a little bit. And I decided to read a book. <laughs> From no tweeting to, well, yeah. just a little, a little bit. A little I, mean, bit. I, couldn't, I mean, people would actually ask me a question. I had to, you know, or at night, if someone was saying something wrong, I had to correct them. So I read a book uh, called Originals, How Nonconformists Move the Move the World. And this is very interesting, I thought, because I think a lot of what we're doing with NEFJC and the Nephrology Social Media Collective is um, a safe space to try to do things that are original. And it sort of talks about how you need to be in an environment that protects you so you can start taking risk. And the people that started companies that sort of change things like still kept their day job. And uh, I think to me, uh, thinking about in science and education, how we're going to move the needle forward, how we're going to do things that are original, um, we need to create these environments where people can can do these things. Jenny, what do you got? Mine's going to be a little bit more lighthearted, I guess. <laughs> so um, one a little factoid I found out about the dean of my medical school, who's Eric Nielsen. He makes five grams of IGA a day. I know. <laughs> That's what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, well, 70, but- 75 kilos. <laughs> but what's totally relevant to social media, though, is that he has an Instagram famous grandchild who is a canine. His daughter has a, I don't know what breed it is, but it's basically named Brussels Sprout. And this dog has more than 135,000 followers and was recently on Rachel Ray. So Eric Nielsen, Insta-famous grand dog. (laughs) I checked out the Instagram account and it was... It was adorable. So that's, and that's why he's Dean is because he's related to this dog? Potentially. The, 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 the dog might be a Dean soon is what she's trying to say. <laughs> that dog might be my boss. <laughs> in the near future. Good luck with that, Jenny. <laughs> Swapna, what do you got? What were we supposed to do? I'm like having a thought block. Berger is, oh, Ber- so, yeah. is what you need to say. <laughs> so... Uh, at the after we get through the meat of the NFJC, give everybody an opportunity to talk about something that they saw in the last week that was interesting to try to kind of leave a, a good taste in your mouth after you've been talking about methods and C statistics for an hour. 
And if you don't have anything, that's fine too. Yeah, I mean, I had the rant on contrast nephropathy. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, this this review article on contrast nephropathy. Should we do this in FJC? I mean, I know we don't normally. No, 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 no. Really? It, it. I mean, it's a dead topic. You know. Yeah, I get excited about it, but really, it's such a lame thing. We did preserve. We have done Poseidon. Yeah. Okay. Done, okay. Uh, Richard, okay. Uh, we have done we've, we've hit it hard. Uh, yeah. We've hit it hard. Yeah. yeah. And people's opinions are fixed. Like, like Josh uh, Farkas uh, had a rant saying it doesn't exist. It's a myth. I mean, they're wrong. But you know, is it worth fighting? It's 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 such a uncommon thing. It's just to me, it's not worth fighting. I, I I hope they would have done a better job. They're so wishy-washy. In fact, I didn't use the word wishy-washy. That's what I was implying. Uh, but Glassick replied to my rant saying, "Yes, they're so wishy-washy." He actually said that. Validated. Yeah, I I think I want to do kind of like a uh, an analysis of the last time NEJM did a review article on contrast nephropathy because my sense is this is a huge walk back from what was previously stated. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think Tukaram, uh, who does the last month, he tweeted a picture of, there was one which said contrast induced AKI yes. from 2000 something six, I think. And now it's contrast uh, and associated. And this one saying it's associated. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they, they're still in the, the meat. It's very, you know, metformin, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's They could have been far more clean. Josh Farkas at Palmcrit had a nice rant oriole that, you know, you should check out. Rantorial. Yeah, this is. So you take a tweetorial and you put a uh, certain spin on it, negative spin. He's a smart guy. Yeah, but he had he had four. I had sixteen tweets. My my rant was longer. <laughs> and how many likes did you have on your top? Yeah, I can't compare with Josh. John, John. I have like fifty retweets and something. He's he's way ahead. Yeah, he basically Excellent. wanted it to be, I think, one line, and it's contrast does not cause nephropathy. I mean, from an ICU perspective, it's he's an intensivist, right? Yeah. And from an intensivist perspective, it is such a pain. Uh, they they probably get con- CT scans of whatever in sick patients, and yeah, you should just go ahead and do them. Those just sick people need do imaging. The scan, yes. Right, right. Like like the the um, elective cardiac cath, where you know people give 300 ml of contrast and they get AKI. That's the contrast. But he does m- mention that you know, he's talking about the. Uh, the CT Venus, scans. exactly yeah. the Venus. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good rantorial. Mm-hmm. Anyway, otherwise we are getting epic. So you know, my mind is fried. We yesterday was our go live with epic, <laughs> and, and it was yeah, I was I was in the dialysis unit, and the the clerks didn't know that they they weren't given the permission to check in the patient. The dialysis was started, but none of the data was going into epic, and yeah, it was a anyway. It's it one of my goals in life is never to use epic. Do you use epic, uh, Jenny? Yeah, yeah, anyway? yeah. We. Um, okay. What was unfortunate for me was every place I trained transitioned to inpatient epic the last <laughs> year I was there. Oh my god! So like when I was an R three, that was when we rolled over to inpatient epic, and <laughs> so you did the go live for like several places. Yeah, and then like Penn <laughs> literally did it like in my last year or two there, and I was like, oh, and then and then when I came to Northwestern, then they went live, and I was just kind of like, <laughs> epic is just following me everywhere. <laughs> You're like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> the epe- the epicopolis. The epicopolis. Epicopolis. Oh I can't say anything today. That would have been a funny joke if I could have just pronounced it. This is a safe space. Okay. We can rant about epic here. Can't do that on can't do that on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Pierre, one of my colleagues did that and he got a call from the chief of staff saying, Hey, this is not good. I think next year my luck will change and I'll be on Epic. Wait, so you guys have your own, like you guys developed your own, right? Like you no, guys were Duke like, has yeah. Epic. I, I just haven't been at Duke in about 10 years. 
You have VA. You're at the VA. (laughs) The labs at at Duke. What do you guys use in the clinic? Are you just at a VA clinic? Right. It's the same EMR. CPR. Uh, CPRS still. But apparently they they signed a contract with Cerner that, who knows when it will go live, but at some point they're going to move to that. My main hospital is Cerner and my secondary hospitals are Epic. And then my tertiary hospitals are some homegrown system. It's like the hospital CEO's son. I mean, it's really a janky thing. I do rem- I do miss the old days uh, whenever you would round with uh, – I remember a med student's job was to get all the paper charts in a row so the attending <laughs> could come by and sign them all. Onto the cart, right? <laughs> right. Onto the cart. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I have seen and agree with the above. And then a, it's kind of a you know little circular signature and go to the next one and do it. And that would be it. I remember rounding in the ICU and like um, the ICU attending had a paper chart like for, for the vitals and the urine output and said, you haven't reported that the urine output has been zero for the past eight hours. And I said, well, the patient has a sleeping and doesn't have a fully, so that could be why the urine output has been zero. <laughs> Let's hope trouble. there's no urine output. <laughs> for being a smart aleck. My uh, tubular secretion is was a, a great uh, Twitter uh, collaboration about this zero sodium dialysate for heart failure that was uh, brought up by a cardiologist slash entrepreneur who had an idea to treat heart failure with zero sodium dialysate. And there were, for days, there were nephrologists commenting on different aspects of it. And it was a really, I thought it was an awesome conversation, very high level. You know, any conversation that gets to the Edelman formula is good for me. Uh, comments from all over Neff Twitter, uh, very, uh, I thought, uh, educational uh, tweet stream kind of showed the best of what uh, Neff Twitter can do. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but that's pretty entertaining if you haven't seen that. Um, and that's what I've got. People should get the book Doctor by Andrew Bomback. He's a nephrologist at Columbia, and uh, it's a slim book, and we're going to be talking about it on NefJC at the end of July. So pick it up and start reading it now so you're ready for that uh, summer book club. Otherwise, uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, watch those potassiums. You're supposed to have a tagline. Matt, you're prepared this time, right? I'm totally prepared. And your tagline is? (laughs) Jenny, what about yours? (laughs) Hey. I thought you were going to say crisper. Swap only got a tagline that you want to go out on. It's going to be epic. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's... Thanks a lot, guys. This has been awesome. We have a basketball score. We have an update on the basketball score. Did you see the shirt that um, that Drake was wearing? <laughs> what was it? Kevin, Kevin's uh, Kevin, Home Alone, Kevin, like Kevin Durant's missing. There's Kevin, and it's like, uh, Kevin. where is he? He's like troll. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. All right. Okay. Bye. Thanks a lot, guys. They're ahead. 106.94. Golden State's ahead. 106. Oh, they're killing him. <laughs>